Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we are going through this book looking at just one particular theme or one motif that appears throughout the book, the theme of the human body and looking at the ways that the Apostle Paul talks about the body and how we are to think about and regard the human body. And so we are continuing that theme this evening. Uh, And before we do read our text, I, I want to preface it by saying this, as I was preparing this series, I did not contrive to preach this text on this particular Sunday evening or any Sunday in June. It just so happened that with the way things worked out, that we come to our text this evening on the day following a celebration yesterday that is celebrating some of the things that this text is talking about. And so this isn't, um, this isn't a reactionary, um, response to that, but this is simply studying God's word as we are going through it and trying to understand how it applies to us in our own context. Romans chapter 1, beginning the reading in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evidence within them, for God made it evidence to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, 
without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. We have read a heavy text which does not deal gently with the human condition of those apart from Christ as they are in some stage or another of being handed over to their own wickedness. So as we have read Romans 1 and as we look around ourselves in our own context, living in the 21st century in the West, certain questions may come up from this text that are worth thinking through, that bring to mind certain questions that we might have about how we should think about our neighbors around us, or even about others within the church. And so this evening, I would like to take up as our our theme and, and topic this statement that the gospel is the only hope for your neighbor's bodily plight. The gospel is the only hope for your neighbor's bodily plight. Well, first let me qualify that somewhat by saying this, that by referring to your neighbor's bodily plight, I'm not saying that there's not any sense in which we also are not in a bodily plight. We too have a kind of bodily plight. We have mortal bodies that are decaying, that are destined for the grave. And also in the moral sense, we have a bodily plight in that We are called to present our bodies as living sacrifices, that we are to present them to the Lord, and that we are called to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And yet, as we heed those calls, we find that there is an irreconcilable war going on between the flesh and the spirit. And so by referring to your neighbor's bodily plight, I'm not saying that, well, we have no plight at all. But I want to fill out your neighbor's bodily plight using some content from Romans 1, which would qualify it in such a way that it's describing a person who is without Christ and without Christ's spirit. So first let us consider the structure of our text as we we seek to understand it and and what it has to say about the body. For our structure, I will propose to you that we can divide the text into three cycles, three iterations, and each cycle or each iteration itself breaks down into three parts. That the first part of each cycle is that there is a a turning away from God with the mind. There is a refusal to acknowledge God, a refusal to worship God. That's the first part. The second part is that God then hands those who have turned away from him over to their darkened minds, to their uh, debased passions. And then the third element is that after God has handed them over, there is a destructive result in the body. 
and that this pattern happens three times. So three times we will read about people turning away from God. Three times we will read about God handing over to their um, blacked-out minds, or some, some similar phrase. And three times we will read about the, the consequences of such a handing over, a destruction. So we'll, we'll draw out some of those details, but then, then take up two pressing questions for the church in our time. So for the first cycle, consider in verse 18 through verse 23 that the first stage of the first cycle is a turning away from God, that people have a, a knowledge of God, but they nevertheless turn away from that knowledge, don't make use of that knowledge, and turn towards idolatry. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what, Jesus, through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So here we read that there is a knowledge of God which is accessible from creation that mankind in this text has suppressed. Sometimes uh, this illustration has been used, and I, I think it serves the purpose well. If you've ever been in a, a pool or at a beach playing with a beach ball, and if you've ever tried to hold that beach ball under the water, you can do so for a little bit, but if, if you're not careful, it can slip out from under your hands, and it comes springing up to the surface. And so that to hold that beach ball down is an, an, act, uh, an active act of suppression that it's not uh, simply, uh, oh, I didn't find that out, but there's a, a willful holding down of something that's evident in there to be understood. There is a turning away from the creator towards the creature to a worshiping of idols. In exchange for worshiping the incorruptible God, they worship corruptible images of man and of animals. Man as made in the image of God, and yet man fallen is corruptible image, and they're worshiping an image of, 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 a, of a creature, something that itself has fallen into and under corruption. Verse 22, they profess to be wise, they become fools. So as a consequence of this willful rejection of a knowledge that was accessible to them, God hands them over. Verse 24. And the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies will be dishonored among them. And so the image seems to be that God is giving these persons into the custody of 
an impure mind, and their impure hearts, and to the lust, as though their bodies were at the mercy of whatever an impure mind might think up to do with the body. We think of a judge who hands over someone found guilty into the custody of either an executioner or some jailer who is going to in some way punish the person handed over. Well, it seems that in this case, the, the person who's doing the punishing or the, the entity doing the punishing is this, this darkened mind that has at its disposal a body to do with it what it desires. And that is the result, the third element in our pattern is that there's a dishonoring of the body, the end of verse 24 there. That the body is dishonored as it is held captive by the lusts of, this, of the heart that the body has been handed over to. The second cycle begins in verse 25 where again we see a willful cognitive uh, exchange away from God towards idolatry. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, now coming to that second element of the second cycle in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So again, God hands them over and they are put into the custody of degrading passions. And these degrading passions then have a bodily consequence that the bodies of those so handed over are used in degrading ways, dishonorable ways. At this point, I'll simply note that there is more in view in these verses than what we might associate with the LGBT movement. This includes all manner of sexual immorality. And this includes all uh, manner of unnatural acts, even acts between men and women, which are unnatural. And it may be the case, it may be the case that there is an echo of the flood narrative and of Sodom and Gomorrah. That it may be the case that there's an echo where there is this past event in which God has opened the heavens revealing judgment and that there is a specific uh, occurrence in mind in history which is illustrating the point. Whatever the case, we do note that the body is in this plight of facing degradation. Continuing on then into the third cycle, verse 28a, now the, the emphasis is very brief on, on the, the turning away from God, that first element, and now the, the final element is going to be more expanded. 
leave the sinful condition into which people are handed over. So very briefly, the beginning of verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's the second element. God gave them over to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So in this final cycle, the result is not just the degradation of the body for an immoral use, but it's finally, as we read in verse 32, a death sentence. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, there is a death sentence for those who find themselves in this condition. So what are we to make of our neighbors? Whom we might describe as being characterized by Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. How, how are we to think about them? If the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, are they too far gone? Do we even bother with people who meet this description? Do we throw in the towel? Is the outpouring of wrath already too far advanced that there's no turning back, there's no saving from the fire? No. Thanks be to God, no. There are several reasons that we can say why that is not the case. Scripture itself gives us indication that there are people who are described by these terms and by these categories who come to faith in Jesus Christ. First, consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, speaking generally. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, verse 18. But something else, verse 16, has also been revealed, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So while there is wrath that is being revealed, there is now operative within this world another power the power of God to salvation the righteousness of God through which anyone who believes may be saved 
And so while somebody who finds themselves as described in verses 18 through 32 is in a dangerous position, it is not a hopeless position. Because in the gospel, the power of God for salvation has come to you. Consider furthermore that the very man who penned these words can be described by at least three of the descriptors in that third stage. We read this text and we we tend to focus in on that second stage, which is describing uh, sexual immorality, but also consider that there's that, that third stage and that most expansive stage that includes all other sorts of things, including disobedience to parents. And consider that the Apostle Paul himself is designated three times in Scripture by terms which show up in this list. Paul writes to Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. That word insolent there is one that shows up in our vice list. But also consider that the Apostle Paul is described as having been breathing out threats and murder. Romans 1 describes those who are full of these things. Consider that the Apostle Paul was so full of murder that he was breathing it out. He wasn't just breathing out threats of murder, but the text says in Acts that he was breathing out threats and murder. And consider that the, the very last statement in Romans 1 describing this plight is describing those who give, who not only do these things, but who give their approval. And think back to the stoning of Stephen and what it says about Saul, that he was given his approval. So not only do we have a general statement within Scripture indicating that those who find themselves in this plight, in this condition, who find themselves stuck between Romans 1, 18 and 32, can be washed, sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus Christ. But the very one who penned these words himself was once characterized by elements of this plight. Well, how is it that someone in this passage can escape How is it that somebody can get from verse 18 back to verse 16 and 17? From the wrath of God that is being revealed from heaven to the righteousness of God that is revealed in the gospel. It is through Jesus Christ. Consider that as Paul has been beating the the drum, the steady rhythm, the steady beat of God handed over, God handed over, God handed over. As we continue to read through Romans, we find that this is not the only time that we read that God handed someone over. 
It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was handed over for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Or later in Romans 8, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but handed him over for us all. How will he not also with us, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Those who find themselves in this bodily plight of a body handed over to the, the corruption of a mind, ultimately leading, ultimately leading to a death sentence, find that there is Jesus Christ the righteous, handed over for our transgressions. That God hands over his own son to receive in his body on the tree that due penalty that belongs to us. So what should our response be as we see our neighbors as we see our neighbors' bodies handed over? Our response should be an increased urgency in proclaiming the gospel. That the response is not throw in the towel, they're as good as gone, let them go, let the wrath come. No, consider how much of a missionary thrust there is in the book of Romans. The response isn't the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, so let's just wait and watch. Paul's response is, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, but the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, so I need to get to Spain. I wanted to come visit you Romans for many, many years, but I haven't been able to because my mission is to preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet. You've heard it, so I've been laboring from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, but now finally that there's no longer any room for work here, now that the gospel has been preached and there's just no room, there's nobody left to evangelize, at long last I can come to you. Help me on my way to Spain. Help me on my way to the barbarian. Because they need the gospel too. And so that should be our response as well. An earnest desire, individual and corporate, increased urgency in bringing the gospel to those who are perishing. That may take different forms for those in Rome. It was a, a supportive role as Paul was going to go carry out his mission. And so that may be the way that you are called to increase your urgency and concern for the gospels in some uh, uh, supportive way, some supportive ministry that you carry out. Or maybe it's inviting over your neighbor into your home, even if they have a lifestyle that you wouldn't agree with. 
and sitting them down at the table with you and getting to know them and sharing with them the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. A second pressing question for us that this text raises is, how are we to think about people in the church who still struggle with particularly uh, what we read in, in verses 26 and 27, the sexually immoral desires, even desires that are against nature? Is this evidence that they are still experiencing wrath? Are we to expect somebody upon coming to faith in Christ to find that upon doing so, all of their fleshly desires, even their against nature fleshly desires, immediately dissolve and are no longer a burden or a problem to them that they struggle with. Oh, you still struggle with that. You're probably not even really a Christian at all. Then. It's important to, to underscore the description of the people who are being handed over. That these people are at the, the mercy, at the whim of a darkened mind and passion, uh, darkened mind and passions. It is not to say that a Christian can never struggle. In fact, as we continue to read in the book of Romans, we will find that there is a conflict, there is a war, that sin is vying for dominion in the body, and that the Christian is called to engage in a conflict. And so that the presence of a conflict is actually evidence that the work of the Spirit has already begun. The work of the Spirit that will triumph over, ultimately, the fleshly passions, and ultimately over a mortal nature in which the body, both in its ethical use but also in its, its quality, in the resurrection, will be conformed to the Holy Spirit perfectly. So that as we see others in the church who may have fleshly struggles that they are engaged in and which are very difficult for them and which they war with, this is not reason to question the sincerity of their faith or whether or not they are in Christ. But rather the struggle itself testifies that the spirit is working and vying within them against the power of sin in the body. Where we need to be concerned is where there is no struggle. When there is a person who is not struggling at all, where they are handed over and under the custody of a mind that is bent on all sorts of sin. for the one who has faith in Christ. And if that happens to be you this evening, as you have come to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you find in your body those old fleshly desires still raging against you and very difficult to combat. Know this, that you have Christ's Spirit within you already. And that Spirit will bring to completion that work that has been begun in you. That right now it's the inner man that is renewed, the outer man is decaying. There's still that fleshly conflict. If 
by God's Spirit, you're engaged in a fight which ends in resurrection. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for his gospel, for the only hope that we have for our bodily part. We ask for our neighbors, those around us whom we see are particularly deceived and whose deception has a, a bodily consequence even now in this life already. We pray that you would have mercy, that you would even use us as instruments, that you would increase the urgency that we have for letting others know of your saving power made known in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.